This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Baxter Healthcare Corporation has provided funding for this podcast, but all content was developed independently by the presenter. Therefore, the views expressed on the podcast are those of the speaker and should not be attributed to Baxter Healthcare Corporation. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield. Today, I'm joined by Azra Bjork, MD, MS, FCCM, to discuss AKI biomarkers and their readiness for clinical use. Dr. Bjork is the R.G. Glenn Davis Professor of Medicine, Surgery, and Anesthesiology in the Division of Nephrology, Hypertension, and Renal Transplantation within the Department of Medicine at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Before we start, I wanted to know if you had any disclosures you needed to report. Uh, yes. Hi, thank you for having me at the podcast. I have my in disclosures. I have received research funds from NIH, SCCM, but also from Astute Biomedical that initially brought to life some of the biomarkers. And I also have consulting and research funds from Atox Bio. Biomarkers are not uncommon to the critical care population. We've been using them for a number of years. But I think the area of biomarkers in acute kidney injury is a little less well-known to people in our profession. So I wondered if you could start by just giving us a brief overview of the, the biomarkers that exist and what they really indicate to us when we see them. I mean, we as an intensivist, we always like to use certain indicators of things to come earlier before events happen. And in nephrology, you know, I'm primarily nephrologist by training initially. Now I'm mainly intensivist by living uh, acute kidney injury has been an orphan child for a long time. You know, for years, we have a very ununified definitions of AKI, and mainly we were focusing on most severe acute kidney injury or acute renal failure, how it used to be called when I started my career. And at, at the time, and for a long time, the, mainly we were focusing on episodes of acute renal failure requiring dialysis. And then in 2004, with the introduction of the rifle criteria, we, we understood that even less severe stages of AKI defined by changing creatinine that corresponds to decreasing GFR are as severe as uh, the most severe one when you completely use your function. And then it became obvious that creatinine, that is really just a surrogate biomarker of the kidney function, is a poor measurement in settings like critical illness for many reasons. The first is that it requires time for creatinine to change in the setting of the decrease in GFR acute. So often we are talking about 24 to 48 hours delay in full-blown diagnosis of AKI. And in the early days, there was the idea that we can maybe find something like a kidney troponin, right? The biomarker that not only will tell us, yes, this is AKI as a functional biomarker, but it also will be a structural biomarker that can give us insight in the structural damage of kidney or some pathophysiological mechanism leading to AKI. One of the biggest challenge, right, as you know, is that AKI is never a uniform disease. 
it can be caused by many different causes. And most of the time in ISU, it's a multiple causes, repetitive exposures that lead to AKI. And because of that, we wanted a biomarker that not just early indicates that you might be at risk of developing AKI, but also perhaps telling you why and maybe also whether you will recover from that AKI. And so it's not a single biomarker that we need. We understood that we need multiple biomarkers. NGEL was the first big biomarker introduced and tested in a multicenter studies with the Thrive group. It was NIH funded, mainly for cardiac surgery associated AKI and showed the most promising results for pediatric AKI. But the field was not satisfied because the angle really didn't perform as we wanted it to perform. And then the group of investigators in AKI came together and with a company and decided, and the Dr. Kellum from Pittsburgh was the PI uh, and Ming Chabla that was at that time George Washington and said, we want to test all existing biomarker head to head that makes sense to us in terms of why is AKI happening and find the best performing one and then validate it. And that's how Nefracha came to be. Two biomarkers were identified, methyloproteinase, insulin growth factor, and both of them cell cycle proteins. And they were tested against multiple other biomarkers in initial discovery trial, Sapphire, and then eventually validated in the Topaz trial. That was the baseline, or it gave a foundation for getting FDA approval to use this biomarker in the practice. That's a great history for us, and it, it kind of explains where we've come from. I know that the biomarkers really got a lot of their early start in the cardiac surgery literature. How has that progressed into the literature for other patients in the ICU? I think one of the reasons why uh, the focus was on a cardiac surgery-associated AKI is because it was easy to decipher, easy to define, right? People had that idea that it makes sense that, you know, when your heart fails, your kidney fails, there's a perfusion issue, there's ischemia, there is exact point when you are clamping that aorta or that artery and you know that is the moment and your kidney is injured. And it makes sense that it would be the easiest scenario to study. However, as we progress to understand better epidemiology of AK and the depth of problem, we got to get to know that. Really, there are other contexts where the AKI happens. So it's not just cardiac, it's also non-cardiac surgery. We did a lot of work into that field. Also, now we know that it is also critical illness. Either it is a sepsis that is probably the biggest driver of the AKI in ICU, modern ICU, but it's also acute, acute respiratory failure or ARDS or other uh, syndromes that lead, uh, lead admissions to the ICU. And as, the, you know, as, as intensivists, we have grown to like and own the sepsis as well, one of the, our biggest challenge. The link between ACA and sepsis is clearly there. You know, I can tell you that you know, we know that almost 60% of the patients with sepsis will have AKI of some stage. And that acute kidney injury is, an, is one of the most common and probably the most devastating organ dysfunction in sepsis, especially if it doesn't resolve with our initial therapies and if it persists. And I think that you see a lot of biomarker now moving towards critical illness and particularly sepsis. I know in your uh, talk at SCCM, you spoke about the development of EHR early tests followed by a biomarker to sort of drive uh, the use of biomarkers in the ICU. 
Can you explain both how you developed that concept and sort of the outcomes of your uh, CAMP AKI study? Absolutely. In our institution, we have worked quite a long time on trying to use all available tools we have in identifying patient at risk for AKI, understanding that it's an important complication in perioperative period and in a critical illness. So my work uh, in a, that is NIH-funded mainly focused on developing technology tools utilizing artificial intelligence, machine learning, and existing electronic health records data to develop models that can be implemented autonomously in the workflow and provide certain indicators, either diagnostic or prognostic to physician, and in a way decrease their load, cognitive load with EHR. So one of those tools obviously uh, has been focused on AKI, and we have been uh, we have a separate platform that we have developed at University of Florida that produces risks for AKI in perioperative period and deliver that to the physicians who are going to operating room. That is much bigger challenge for ICU, right? Because in ICU we have more heterogeneous population. You don't have a defined time with patients are coming to ICU. The providers change more frequently. Sometimes they are, you are uncertain who really the provider is. Who is the executor is not an easy decision, right? And what was interesting is if you look at the research of alerts in AKI, you know, if you think about it, well, of all the things we do, it's relatively straightforward getting an alert for AKI, you know, it's not a biggest challenge. You know, we have a set of rules we can all agree on and we can develop alert and we can alert our physicians that AKI occur. But is it enough? So study in the Yale uh, by Dr. Wilson, uh, it was a randomized control trial where they developed alert for AKI, alerting you just that you have an AKI, not before the episode, just knowing AKI. And then sending a text message to the providers and telling them, hey, your patient has an AKI. And here's the page you can go. And that page is a KDGO guidelines page that gives you certain very simple measures you can do for AKI. Here's the page you can go to that. And that study was randomized, controlled trial, showed that if you provide alert, you don't change any outcomes. So giving alert, is it enough? Because when you dissect actions that physician took, you find out that although they got alert and yes, they were directed to what they should be doing, obviously they didn't do what they need to do. They still do the same things. Uh, the doctors who get, got alerts and doctors who did not get alert did not change their behavior. And really now we are coming to implementation science problem. We can have tools, we can have biomarkers, we can have, you know, we can have uh, digital biomarkers like risk assessment tools that we have. You can have uh, biological biomarkers like a urinary or blood biomarkers, but somebody needs to do something after that, right? So we need to change behavior. And that's probably the hardest task we are dealing with in, in, a, in a medicine. Even our protocols, when they are prescribed and you exactly tell people what to do, we don't do them, right? I mean, you intensivists, you know that. So the behavior is the hardest things. And I feel, see in the future, we'll see more studies focused on behavior. What we have understood is that if we, there are two options with, uh, with the testing biomarker. Either we will test everybody or we will test a certain patient, but we need to make it simple on who those patients are. 
I don't know whether you are aware, but there are other places that have implemented biomarker together with the protocolized care, like in a Prevaki RCT trial, that was a cardiac surgery trial in the Austria with Dr. Zarbok. He was the first one who used protocolized delivery based on biomarker for AKI, and he showed benefit in decrease in AKI. Now, what they did, they tested everybody. So for them, every patient come for out of cardiac surgery, get biomarker tests. But that's simple, right? But what will be the drawback of that is obviously cost, right? And uh, the cost of biomarker is between $550 and $70 for one test. It doesn't seem much, but it's a lot, right? Because as you know, I don't know whether in your ICU, but uh, tyl- IV Tylenol is restrictive medicine in our ICU. Is it in yours? Uh, it's not, uh, it is restricted to certain populations. Yeah. It's not, not as uh, restrictive as at some places, but you know, I, I can see how a biomarker, if you're thinking about a typical academic or non-academic ICU, with, you know, several thousand emissions a year, if you biomarkered everybody, you could rapidly, uh, increase costs dramatically and, and may not be able to show significant benefit with those. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, because the Tylenol, IV Tylenol is less than $30. Right. This is more than that, right? And then if you give it in a then unrestricted use, you know, it would go and then not knowing what to do with that will lead to what something that I like troponin and BMP in ICU, right? How many times do you order BMP and troponin? Uh, dozens and, and uh, amazingly doesn't always help that much. Exactly. Especially, I mean, like, and we draw a conclusion that have nothing to do with the original approval of the test, Right. So we, we waste a lot of resources and uh, all of us are becoming aware of that. So our idea was whether we can, you know, in certain ICUs, maybe it makes sense, like cardiac ICU, where we have a tight control to test everybody. But in a general ICU, in medical ICU, in a general surgical ICU, testing everybody might be very low yield. And I'll give you an example. First would be that, in surgical ICU, general surgical ICU, uh, there are patients that would not qualify for original inclusion criteria for the TOPAS study. So when the, when the biomarker was validated, the, you had to fulfill certain clinical criteria. You had to have at least two SOFA score on cardiovascular or respiratory. So it means you had to have either hypotension or hypoxia. Now, where did that come from? And study excluded anybody who had CKD stage three and above. So you couldn't have advanced stage CKD and also it didn't include transplant patients. So now if you think about that, and if you go back to KDGOM, you know, the paradigm of AKI, what constitutes risk for AKI? It was broadly categorized into the susceptibilities and exposures. So in saying that, and I think that applicable to any disease we see, is that you have a certain population that have a higher susceptibility for developing AKI. And, you know, from the top of my head, always, I can tell you, there are three groups of patients. One would be older, elderly age. Right. Second would be patients with existing kidney disease, CKD, right? Yep, okay. And then would be patients who already have mild oliguria or stage one AKI. So that's an interesting thing because you could have stage one AKI in the TOPAS study be involved because you were predicting more severe stages. So understanding that early stage one AKI is still risk 
And it's something that you need to understand whether this is a patient who's just going to get better with your measures or is it something who's going to progress. So those are main susceptibilities or somebody who just recovered from AKI. Those are the patients who have the highest susceptibility. Then exposures, among exposures we know of, sepsis obviously is a big one, major surgeries, um, hypotension for me almost inevitably is a big exposure uh, in, uh, in, in ICU and operating room massive transfusions, and uh, that just to start with. So these are the things that we basically just did in our rule-based little calculator in EHR. We said, if I have a patient who has no known kidney disease, right, perfectly normal kidneys, and he had a minor surgery that never had hypotensive, he's not getting any nephrotoxic drug, he's coming to your ICU, right? He's not hypotensive. Why that patient has zero clinical risk. The yield for that patient is probably very low for biomarker, right? Right. I mean, it's the same thing like for us. Like if you are really well and you are really doing well, you don't need anybody to tell you that this patient is going to do well, right? We can identify white and black very well, but we don't do very well with the gray. So this is for us. This was for us basically quite a little tool that we can say, okay, this is obvious white, right? These are the patients who you do not need to test. So to really uh, test somebody, we needed to have at least one susceptibility and one exposure together. Or you could have one very strong or combination of two exposures. In a case, this will identify patients. So, you know, we are far from perfect. This uh, little uh, note that everybody on admission get this note that repopulate that is now becoming part of admission note. Just repop- repopulate these elements and then help you say, yes, this is a patient with high clinical risk. You can assign the number or you can just say he has combination of susceptibility, susceptibility exposures. And we will only test you in that case. If you don't have the combination of this, we don't test you. So that ended up being quite a lot of saving, may I just say, because we found out that almost half of our patients in general surgical ICU don't need testing with biomarker. So, so in other words, you've used the uh, electronic medical record to enrich for your pretest probability of positive tests and therefore cut the cost down. And what was unique in when I saw your study is, is that you've incorporated that into the physician's note and not into uh, a Bex practice alert or other sort of electronic alert to suggest ordering of the, the subsequent test. Why did you choose that method of alerting physicians? Well, it was all started as a, our um, quality project, and I still am not quite convinced what's the best thing to do that, you know, because we wanted to champion this, we wanted to develop together with the PAs, and uh, this was an effort between uh, physician providers, physician extenders, ARMPs, and residents, and attendings, and nursing staff. So we wanted something that we all bought into, and, uh, you know, we know that it will remind you when you write that note, you will order that. Got it. Okay. You're not going to ignore that because, you know, you got to do that. You are there. Now, we have done some changes in that by... In, as example, we have decided that sepsis is such a big exposure that we will make this part of the sepsis order. Okay. So now you automatically get tested for when you get sepsis order set. So we have a little alert. We, you know, like any institution, we run the MUSE score. The physician go, yes, this is sepsis. 
and then we click the order set and repopulate everything that needs to be done, including the tests, and we test this test, right? And then um, we have linked this to the interventions. Okay. And uh, the intervention is the is the part where if you now say this is my high risk, I ordered an effort check. When you get an effort check, then we run the interventional protocol. That is relatively straightforward. And the protocol uh, is just A, B, C, D in terms of what you need to do. And uh, we, we ask that the creatinine is checked every 12 hours, that you check hourly urine output. We ask for optimization of blood pressure that change our um, blood pressure order set in a way that we are now looking for those patients to identify their reference blood pressure. So you need to stay within 10% of your reference. That means that you don't drop the blood pressure for patients who have high reference. In other words, we don't necessarily, everybody needs to be less than 120, 140. We personalize the blood pressure goals. And that helps a lot for patients who have problems like susceptibilities and chronic hypertension, a lot of autoregulation, which to rigorous blood pressure control might be harmful. And have you augmented those patients who are septic and hypotense and shot for MAPs that are higher than 65 and those patients that have innate hypertension and typically run higher? So that's a, that's a great question because, as you know, that one of the one of the trials that look at um, different blood pressure goal, right, in sepsis did not show benefit of higher MAPs except in a subgroup of patients with a renal replacement therapy and AKI, right? So we are seeing that patients with a AKI might be a little bit different. So we have left this to the discretion of the attending. So in other words, because we don't have a hardcore evidence, right? We left that saying whether, you know, and we incorporated that most more in us. So our protocol has, you know, A, B, C, D, E for the patients who are in what I called high risk between 0.3 and 2 on FRHA. It's a positive clinical score. So you need to have both positive, right? And, and. So in other words, if you have a high clinical risk and then you run an effort check and it's negative, you still don't do the protocol. You consider them as a low risk. So you enrich two times. First, you enrich pre-test probability. And then you now, in a patient who have high risk, you downgrade them if you, they have negative biomarker because you say, okay, this is a higher clinical risk, but biomarker is not showing biological evidence of stress. So this patient is okay at this point. So you further narrow down. So you really need to double positive to have protocol. And then if you are double positive, if you are in a range of 0, 3, and 2 that I consider high risk, then you only do in a very simple things, A, B, C, D, E. But if you are greater than 2 that I consider very high risk, you might do more risky management. And we are even considering automating nephrology involvement, but we haven't yet got there. So for the personalization of blood pressure in a, st- in a group of patients who have a, you are double positive and let's say have a hypotension right now and are running on oppressors, right? We left that to the discretion of the attending physician whether to, to see whether achieving reference blood pressure is a reasonable goal because for some patients it's impossible with the pressors we have. Having said that, right, we are getting some new pressors on the, on the board for us that might make this a little bit easier. Because in a patient who have a profound, very resistant hypotension, often you have an element of vasoplegia, you know. So for those patients, 
And if that's combined with, uh, with the risk for AKA, those are very unique group of patients that end up doing poorly in any disease category, either it's a sepsis of you know, cardiac surgery or is it respiratory failure. Those patients might be in a way different and we still don't understand why and phenotypically. And now we have some new ideas that this might be a combination maybe of the endothelial dysfunction, angiogenesis, inflammation, immunosuppression, the high renin state, you know, there are all these new things that are coming up and we have to look for that because I don't think we will stop on one biomarker. We're going to start seeing people not as a rainbows, but just as a like yellow, greens, red and blue, right? And then we're going to start making this much easier to do. Now, where do you, now everything I said to you becomes even more complicated. So how do you go from that complexity to decreasing the cognitive load to physicians and then also making them buy into the game. That is the hard part. So is there a patient population where you don't think biomarkers are ready for clinical use? I think that one of the challenging will be urology patients uh, because in those patients, manipulation of the urinary tract and hematuria often you know could mask the we don't have we don't know yet enough you know i don't know whether i have no data on you know cumulative data on what so far was done we are testing those in our institution because we are interested and that i think they are uh, requiring more studies i think another group of patients that will require more study and potentially can have a huge benefit are transplant patients and we have looked, we have worked on our liver transplant team because we think that they are very useful in that group of patients. The kidney transplant, also, I think we need more data. And, but we are doing some work in the lung transplant, also in heart transplant, with the idea to see, you know, because we have obvious exposure together with the use of nephrotoxic drugs. I think that in another subgroup of patients, we have enough knowledge to combine what we know about simple interventions we can do and we are not doing in a predictive abilities of the combined clinical scores and biomarkers together because we have some good ones in both arena to launch this implementation science type of studies where we will now more understand system-wide measures, right? How to deliver this, how to deliver these interventions and how to engage providers in doing them to see the benefit and what's the number needed to treat. And that's uh, something that uh, obviously I have a lot of interest in. Yeah, you've given us a lot to think about. And you, you've talked about the complexity, there's the biomarkers and the, the cognitive load that we as critical care providers face every day with our patients. If you were speaking to a, a medical director or a clinician who was interested in bringing biomarkers to their institution, are there one or two really important things to think about as they bring such a program to where they work? I think what I would say, and uh, there are a lot of people now writing about this, is that it really is um, team effort. You know, you need to bring, uh, besides laboratory administration, number one, laboratory needs to buy into that because they will carry the cost, most cost of that. You need to bring ICU team who is eventually um, ready to understand their own population. I cannot emphasize more like that, think globally, act locally. We really need to think like that in critical care medicine because personalization is also geographical. We don't yet have millions and millions of data points, right? To train 
artificial intelligence algorithm, you require a million, million data points and hours and hours of highly resource, highly resourceful hardware like GPUs, like Google has, right? Who made the AKI, you know, 300,000 hours. You know, that is enormous amount of computational resources that we don't have. You know, not every institution have, not we as a group have. So we have to think about how we can develop models that are in a way as of now applicable to our local population. So a lot of this model needs to be retrained on your sets. And what's interesting is that often local features are very important. Your performance of your doctors, who, you, who are your physicians, who are your surgeons, how do you do your operations? How do you do anesthesia and doctor perioperative? What's your cultural practice in your medical ICU? The term is a lot of outcomes, right? You know, what, and, and the term is a lot of complication rate too. Uh, we don't have a, a systematic way of measuring this yet. But one day when we do, we will understand the variability of practice it is also a prognostic factor. So, you know, that's why, you know, we said we have to take our data, we have to understand our baseline. We started with our historical data. This is where we are. This is our population. These are our risks. This is what we are starting with, right? That's our baseline. And then we build this together. We had to have multiple teams buy into that. Nephrology, intensive care, surgery, right? Nursing leadership. And then you need to have champions, in every, unfortunately, still we need to have champions because we don't know better way of engaging providers for into compliance. So it's not a big task. That's why we use this standardized SCAMP framework because it's how it is how it operates. It says go from the data to the team to practice that is more pragmatic than necessarily always evidence based because some of the things we do is not always evidence. It's also best practice. Azure, I love how you've taken us from the biochemical markers of kidney stress and kidney injury to best practice and the, the complexities of implementation science. And uh, appreciate you taking your time today to, to guide us through AKI biomarkers and, and how they might be useful to us in our own practice. Uh, this concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast team, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true, patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Baxter Healthcare Corporation has provided funding for this podcast, but all content was developed independently by the presenter. Therefore, the views expressed on the podcast are those of the speaker and should not be attributed to Baxter Healthcare Corporation. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D. is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. 
In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.